Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the kickoff of the last day of Pain Week. You've all made it, and I hope you have enjoyed yourself. Um, welcome to this morning's session titled A Wrinkle in the Plan, Metabolic Changes in Palliative Care in the Older Adult. This morning's speaker is Dr. Tanya Yuritsky, Clinical Pharmacy Specialist in Pain and Palliative Care at the University of Pennsylvania. Please give her a warm welcome. Everybody. Thank you for coming this morning. I know it's early. I know it's Saturday morning in Las Vegas. Um, I'm feeling it too, so I really appreciate that. I'm really happy you're all here, and I hope that we can have a nice um, discussion. There's not too many people, so hopefully we can even get some you know, audience opinions and such. Um, so what I hope to accomplish today is to talk about the pharmacokinetic changes that occur in the body as people get older, um, because they are different, and old, treating the older adult does take some special fine-tuning. Um, I also want to talk about the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic considerations for choosing specific agents in relation to um, being used in the older adult. And then finally, we're going to work through a little case and just talk about how to maybe choose better or more appropriate pharmacologic therapies for symptom management in the older adult. And honestly, I work at a tertiary referral center, so I see a lot of younger patients as well who are very, very, very sick. And a lot of these principles apply to those folks as well as they've, they're at very close to the end of their life and very, very sick. Um, okay, so polypharmacy is something that's seen a lot in the older adults. So in those folks who are over the age of 65, they account for 34% of the prescription medications and 50% of over-the-counter medication utilizations. So that's pretty significant. This is a large chunk of folks we're, we're treating. Obviously, you're here to learn about it. So <laughs> um, over 80% of those folks take more than one medication a day. And as a pharmacist, this is really critical to me because what I know is that there are almost no medications that have been studied with more than two medications, at most three at a time. So if you have folks taking, oh, I don't know, nine, ten medications, we are really not sure how they're all interacting together. It surely is very complex. Um, I don't know if any of you do hospice or have ever seen when you stop medications, people get better. Yeah, so that does happen, right? Um, so if you have if you have someone on nine medications, which an average patient living in a nursing home is taking nine medications a day, then you know, that's definitely maybe rational polypharmacy, but there may be room to improve that. 12% um, of those use 10 or more different medications. I know I've seen medication lists that are pretty amazing to me. <laughs> I don't know how they get those many pills down their throat. Um, so I just like this little quote that says, any symptom in an elderly patient should be considered a drug side effect until proved otherwise. Because as a pharmacist, again, when I start seeing symptoms, I look at the drugs. I just, my eyes go there. That's the first place they go and they say, let's see what we can get rid of, what could be causing this, in addition, to, obviously, to all of the other things. Um, so adverse drug reactions as people get older become more and more significant. You can see there's two very distinct populations in this slide. So you can see over here, the babies of the world. So the young people are very highly at risk for the um, drug, adverse drug interactions. And then the older folks. Um, as we get older, as we age, we have more and more risk for uh, adverse drug reactions. And why is that? Probably because we're taking more and more medications. Um, so the actual incidence of adverse drug reactions with two medications is about 13%. That's still pretty fair to me. <laughs> um, but as we go to five medications, it's 58%. So no, I'm not talking about major adverse drug reactions that are going to land you in a hospital and end land you in an ICU, but this is just something as simple as constipation from an opioid, right? That's an adverse drug reaction. Um, and then with more than seven medications, up to 87% of people are going to experience an ADR. If you've taken a medication, you probably have experienced some form of ADR. It might have been ex something that's acceptable to you or something you know was okay for a short period of time. But just imagine in someone who's older, that's pretty, pretty significant if they're on numbers of medications. Um, okay. 
So the potential implications for all of these medications being given at the same time is that, as we already mentioned, adverse drug reactions, but lots of drug-drug interactions on levels that we don't really understand, pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic. When I say pharmacokinetic, I mean the way that the body's metabolizing, right? The way that the process of the body is using the drug. But then pharmacodynamic is when we're laying the, layering the drugs on top of each other and we have their adverse effects kind of compiling. So like increased sedation between benzodiazepines and opioids, for example, would be your pharmacodynamic reaction. Drug and disease interactions, so lots of drug and disease interactions. An example for we can think of that's pretty obvious if you've been here for a whole week is something like sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, and opioids, um, but that's just one. There's plenty. Um, higher risk for use of potentially inappropriate medications, which is what we'll review in a few minutes. Decreased adherence to regimens, right? Because I don't know, have you ever taken a drug that you have to take three times a day? I have. How many times did you miss a dose? Always, at least once, <laughs> right, every day. Oh, shoot, I forgot my lunch dose again. Why did I do that, right? Um, and so imagine if you had four drugs that were dosed three times a day. It's not the person's fault. It's impossible. Um, <clears throat> they really want to do the, a good job. And then um, increased risk for medication errors, right? So if we know that we can give one medication wrong, we can possibly give seven medications wrong. Um, and then increased cost. Obviously, that makes sense. And increased morbidity and mortality associated with all of these um, medications. So. If you've ever been to a talk on deprescribing, they talk a lot about those things as well, which I'll mention a little bit at the end. Um, so the reasons why this might happen, it's not our fault. We're good people. We're not trying to give people 7,000 medications. There's a reason why people end up on a lot of medications. Um, multiple chronic diseases. And with multiple chronic diseases in this day and age come multiple therapeutic guidelines. Each one is in a silo, right? <laughs> so you're not necessarily having one guideline talk to the other. So it's very hard to not end up on seven medications, actually, I think. Um, so we have to be aware of all these, indi these individual guidelines and help them talk to each other. Um, there's multiple prescribers being involved. So sometimes we have pharmacists sit down with patients and go over all their medications because one prescriber may not be talking to the other. And then we already talked about how there's body changes, which I'm gonna go into now following this slide, more of the changes that happen actually in the older adults specifically. Um, and then the older adults, there's not as many people trained in geriatric pharmacotherapy and in managing these folks, so there's also a lack of, of resources for these people to have um, professionals who are aware of what's going on. And then, um, like I mentioned, we're going to talk about the pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic changes and focus on that a little bit. So what we know happens as we age is orally, we have decreased motility, decreased blood flow to the gut, and increased gastric pH. That's great. What does that mean? Um, so that basically means that the onset of medications may be delayed and the peak effect may be delayed of these medications. So a drug that you or I or a younger person might take that might take 30 minutes to onset might take an hour in an older adult and it might hang around a little bit longer. Um, intramuscularly, if we're giving things intramuscularly, which as a palliative care provider I don't do, but it may happen from time to time. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so what we know is that as we age, our muscle mass goes down, our peripheral circulation goes down, and we have increased connective tissue. What does that mean? If we give a medication intramuscularly, probably not gonna get the same absorption in an older adult as you're gonna get in a younger adult. So you probably need a lower dose, potentially an extended interval. You're gonna hear that a lot today. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm so sorry. It's early for my throat here, <laughs> and it's very dry here. Um, okay, and then topically, you're gonna have decreased skin hydration. Um, so your skin isn't getting as much um, hydration, so you may see an increase in keratinization as well. What does that mean? That means if I put a fentanyl patch on, I can probably expect some alter absorption, or any patch for that matter, that absor absorption may be altered. How much so? Probably don't know very much because older adults are left out of all studies. So we don't really know exactly what that's, what's going on there, but we need to be aware they may have decreased absorption with patches. 
<coughs> excuse me. So then what happens with distribution, right? That's another um, one of our pharmacokinetic parameters. Body composition changes. As we get older, our body fat increases. Um, whether we like it or not, it's true. <laughs> and um, our muscle mass goes down. We have decreased cardiac output due to decreased water. And so that ends up in increased distribution of lipid-soluble medications. So medications have more likelihood to kind of go into the fat, hang around in the fat, because there is more fat. Um, <coughs> simple as that. And then protein binding is also affected. So there are medications that bind and have a high affinity for proteins. And so these medications are things we need to think about in older adults because we have decreased protein hanging around. Um, in high, free fraction drugs are the ones we typically think about, things that are actually pretty challenging sometimes in older adults, things like phenytoin, digoxin, lots of older adults are on warfarin and on thyroid hormones. So um, closer monitoring may be needed in those patients because of the lower um, protein that's available for binding. Then there's metabolism, and I always think this is so incredibly interesting. So obviously this relies on the liver, right? So hepatic metabolism is affected in the older adult, and there's reduced phase one reactions. So agents that rely on that are things like diazepam, amitriptyline, and chlordiazepoxide. Probably not using that much of those drugs. If you are in an older adult, you might want to rethink it and choose something that relies a little bit more on phase two reactions. Um, these are things like lorazepam, oxazepam, and disipramine. So um, if you are looking at those drugs and saying, I never use any of those drugs, that's a beautiful thing because when we get into the, the beers list talking a little bit, we're going to realize that those drugs are all on there. Um, but sometimes we have to use drugs like this. So if we're choosing between a benzo, we're thinking probably lorazepam over diazepam in the older adult. Um, those drugs also may have active metabolites. So you'll see, again, similar drugs. Uh, another reason why you might choose lorazepam over diazepam, because things um, like benzodiazepines may have active metabolites in the form of diazepam and chlordiazepoxide. Your TCAs are tricyclic antidepressants. Not using as much. Is anybody using a lot of those? We don't use as much of them either. Um, I feel like when you're, if you've been practicing for a long time, you probably have some experience with them or may love them. Um, old drugs are good drugs, but drugs like amitriptyline and imipramine have active metabolites. You probably want to avoid those or be very cautious with those in your older adult. Um, we're not probably using a lot of antipsychotics like thorazine or thioridazine unless you're doing hospice um, in the older adult. And then opiates like morphine and meperidine, which I'll talk about a little bit more, have active metabolites we need to be aware of. <clears throat> Excuse me. So elimination is your final metabolic parameter, and you'll see decreased renal blood flow, right, um, and renal tubular secretion. Decreased muscle mass leads to stable serum creatinine, right? Has anyone ever seen a, a serum creatinine of one in an older adult? Serum creatinine of one is probably not a serum creatinine of one in an older adult, right? So we know we have to interpret that cautiously because that's maybe a little bit elevated in someone who has a decreased muscle mass. Um, and so that affects overall drug clearance. What we do know about older adults is that the average renal function of an 80-year-old is about 50% of that of a 20-year-old. So it doesn't mean you can't use a drug that's metabolized renally, that's eliminated renally um, in an older adult. We just have to be aware of this and dose accordingly. So again, like you're going to hear a lot, we have to choose lower doses and potentially extended intervals. Um, so this is just a chart uh, from renal, uh, renal dose adjustment. A colleague of uh, mine and myself wrote a review of the use of medications in palliative care in older adults last year, um, and this comes from that review that we wrote. Um, she was actually supposed to present with me today, but she's having a baby in like two weeks, so <laughs> it's just me. Um, but this is from that review. So you can see that, and the, the um, citation is on there for you if you want the entire review, um, that I've listed out the medications that may require dose adjustment and renal impairment. Um, so particularly analgesics, things like morphine and codeine, I'd argue you should probably avoid codeine um, unless you really have to use it for a cough, um, tramadol, and NSAIDs, right? And that's not necessarily just dose adjustment with NSAIDs. You may want to avoid them altogether depending on the situation. 
Um, things like anticonvulsants, so the ones we typically use a lot in palliative care, gabapentin and pregabalin. Uh, we don't use as much dipyramide or oxcarbazepine, but if you're using those, they require uh, renal adjustment. Um, gastrointestinal medications, so metoclopramide, that's something that's a friend of mine. I do a lot of oncology, a lot of GI cancer stuff, so we use a lot of metoclopramide that does require renal adjustment in addition to things like famotidine and ranitidine, which are basically in the water at this point. I mean, everybody's on age two in my experience, um, or a PPI. Um, and then um, antidepressants and other cardiovascular medications, and they're listed out for you there. So this is very busy. I hate busy slides. I apologize for this, but I tried to make bold what matters, and you can see over and over again, decreased initial dose, decreased dosing frequency. And I think that's what I'd like you to take away from here, clinical actions, right? Like this is great. I've kind of already reviewed all the alterations for you that happen, um, but this is nice in that it tells you exactly what to do about that because it's great to know what happens, but you really need to know what to do about it. So for most medications, you're going to find a decreased dosing frequency and that they probably require a um, decreased, a change in your frequency of um, interval as well as dose. And so that's primarily what we need to think about. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, so then there's pharmacodynamic changes. I already kind of told you what that means, but we assume when something's going wrong and we can't explain it pharmacokinetically that there's probably a pharmacodynamic interaction for it. Um, it's more variable. We really don't understand it as much. And what we know is there's numbers of receptors and the sensitivity of receptors in older adults is altered, as well as <coughs> excuse me, their ability to counter-regulate against any of these mechanisms. So that may be altered as well. And examples of this are things like increased risk of tardive dyskinesia and Parkinsonism with antipsychotics, increased sensitivity to anticholinergic agents, um, which we see a lot, and then increased sensitivity to warfarin and NSAIDs. So this is also seen pharmacodynamically. So when you put those two drugs together, increased risk of bleeding. Um, okay, so that leads me to the potentially inappropriate medications. So I've talked a lot about how things are metabolized and not necessarily metabolized the same way which leads us to having medications that may not be the best choices for older adults. So potentially medi inappropriate medications when defined are medications or classes that should generally be avoided in persons who are over 65 years of age um, because they're either ineffective or they pose an unnecessarily high risk and a safer alternative is available. So that's um, some of the medications we're gonna talk about. And we do use some of the potentially inappropriate medications in palliative care and or hospice. So we need to be aware that we may be using these things and how to appropriately monitor for them. Um, the prevalence in an older adult of being on a potentially inappropriate medication is 21%. So that's almost a quarter of patients who are probably on a potentially inappropriate medication. Um, and you see that has 21% there, but then you get to other statistics that have it as high as almost 65%. So um, I think it depends on how you define a potentially inappropriate medication, and there's different resources that define them differently. Um, typically used, though, is the Beers criteria, which you're probably familiar with, or if you're not, you're going to be familiar with in a couple minutes. Um, there's a whole list of drugs out there. I'm going to focus on the ones that we mostly use in palliative care so that we're not getting into the drudgery of all the other drugs because it's a lot. Um, you can see it's been around this list for a long time, and it's been revised multiple times. And it's readily out there. You can Google it, and it comes up. It's not something you have to have access for. Um, but it does identify these high-risk agents and individual offenders. So um, as I said, I'm going to focus on the medications we really use in palliative care. So I've selected those out of the group, but there's a lot more. Um, so I'll start off with the analgesics. Analgesics, um, things like non-selective NSAIDs, so ibuprofen, naproxen, things like that, 
are challenging, right? We use them. We just have to be aware that they have potentially um, increased risk of bleeding in older adults. If older adults are on therapeutic anticoagulation as well, on medications like SSRIs, they're going to be at increased risk of bleeding. A lot of people aren't aware that if you throw an SSRI on, or anything that's actually serotonergic, with a, an NSAID, you increase the risk of bleeding, the same as if you put somebody on therapeutic anticoagulation up to seven times. So you want to be aware of that interaction so that you're saying, okay, do I need to put this person on a medication to prevent bleeding? And really the only medication that should be used to prevent bleeding and doesn't necessarily actually prevent it but decreases the risk would be something like a PPI. And now you're adding a PPI on in an older adult, so we want to think about that too, right? Doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. We should, especially if the risk outweighs the benefit of using an NSAID. A person suffering in severe pain can't get around. They're not going to do well. They may need an NSAID. So we need to talk through that. Um, other medications that are on there on the analgesic realm is the opioids. That's great. <laughs> What do we do now? I can't give you an NSAID. I can't give you an opioid. I'm stuck with nothing. Um, so that's really, really challenging. But the particular ones that they've pointed out are meperidine and pentazacine. Anybody using these medications for pain? A couple of hands, maybe. We don't use it a lot. A lot of people aren't using them. Lots of reasons why. I'm not, gonna, I'm not here to talk about why not to use meperidine or pentazacine overall. But in older adults, it's you know renal dysfunction. These medications can accumulate, have risk for seizures, and poor outcomes. And pentazacine is not a full agonist, so you're not going to get that full opioid effect from that medication. Um, muscle relaxants are another category of drugs in our older adults that we need to be very careful with and are avoid. I've listed out a couple there for you, cyclobenzaprine, carisoprodol. These medications are very sedating. Cyclobenzaprine or flexoral is like a TCA, so it has a similar drug structure, so it has very similar adverse effects. So if you're going to choose a muscle relaxant, you probably want to avoid medications like that or keep it at the lowest dose for the smallest, shortest duration possible. Um, first generation antihistamines, diphenhydramine, oxybutynin, these medications we, I actually see a lot in my older adults. Older adults might be taking them and not realizing what they're doing um, because diphenhydramine is over the counter, right? So I'm going to take my Tylenol PM, I'm going to go to sleep, um, and I'm getting a lot of Benadryl. And we know that these medications are anticholinergic in nature, antihistaminergic in nature. They make people fall, and that's why we avoid them overall if we can. Um, so if you, if you have someone who needs a medication like oxybutynin for um, their bladder, then you want to think about maybe using a different agent. Or I know that these medications don't have as much efficacy as well, or stopping it and seeing if they can go without it. Um, but we can try some, an alternative as well that may be helpful instead of something like oxybutynin. Um, and then other cardiovascular medications, things like clonidine, spironolactone, associated with orthostatic hypotension, um, and then also potassium, elevated potassium with bronolactone. So patients, um, older adults, don't do as well with these types of medications. And I only put this on there because sometimes we use clonidine for pain as well. Um, so we need to be aware that orthostatic hypotension is at risk for falls as well. Um, <clears throat> other medications that are not necessarily pain-related, um, <laughs> excuse me, um, appetite stimulants. So I, we put people on appetite stimulants all the time, at least I do, because everybody's like, I'm not eating, I need an appetite stimulant. And I used to, very early days of my practice, say, this is a waste of our time. Like, but over time, you realize you have to treat the family, not necessarily the patient at times, and people eating. And I had a baby, right? And so I realized when I had a baby that life begins with feeding and life ends with feeding <laughs> issues. And so feeding is a challenge no matter what. And feeding has been a focus of my life since I had that first baby almost five years ago. And I'm like, oh my God, feeding is feeding, right? That's all we talk about, that's all we do. This is a focus of our lives. We have to do these things. So when we are going to think about an appetite stimulant, we need to avoid or pick the ones that have the most bang for our buck and the minimal risk. And it seems like beers agree with me because they put Medistral on there, or Megase is the brand name for that, 
And I never put my patients on megase because it's prothrombotic. And it also causes water and sodium retention. And it's just not that effective. And I do a lot of oncology. And it's for the minimal weight gain I'm going to get, it's going to be mostly water weight gain. I'm not excited about the risks I'm putting my patient at. So I try to avoid that medication at all costs. I choose things like mirtazapine, which actually is on the beers list. Yikes. Um, so mirtazapine is an antihistaminergic medication, so that can put people at risk for falls as well. So we have to be aware of that and monitor for that. But am I going to put my older adult who has an appetite issue and cancer and isn't sleeping and has a little mood problem on mirtazapine? Yes, I'm going to choose that because I have rational polypharmacy going on all in one drug, right? It hits a lot of different things and it can be really effective. And so that risk of someone falling is there, but I'm monitoring for it, I'm educating about it. It's better than giving them a clot, um, and it may actually give them some weight gain too. That's not water weight gain. Um, and just a little snippet on appetite stimulants because I already started off on that round. <laughs> um, remember that when we put someone on appetite stimulants, people don't, what kind of weight do we gain when we eat more? We gain fat, right? We get fat. Probably this week here, <laughs> we might have gained a little fat. Um, so <laughs> um, when we gain fat, do we live longer? No, right? So appetite stimulants don't make us live longer. They don't have any benefit to, to mortality. That's why we want to min minimize morbidity associated with them um, and try and get the most bang for our buck. Okay. Um, Gastrointestinal medications, metoclopramide. So I talked about how we use that in older in our palliative care patients a lot. Um, metoclopramide is the reason it's on here is renal issues, but also it has um, its um, uh, EPS-like features, so extrapyramidal-like potential. But at the doses that we're using, they're very low. Um, typically, it's not something we see as much unless used in combination with other antidopaminergic agents. So um, lower doses, extended intervals are something that we can think about for metoclopramide in our older adults. Mineral oil, anybody giving mineral oil by mouth? Good. Um, <laughs> this came up on service a few weeks ago, and they wanted to do this for one of my patients. And I was like, I never, actually had never even thought about that because we just don't do that. Um, high risk for aspiration, so typically not used by mouth in really anybody. Um, and then dicyclamine and things like levsin, or I'm, this word is so hard for me to say, hyoscyamine or hyoscamine. Everyone says it differently, however you call it, um, whatever you want to call it. Levsin is the brand name. These medications are very, very sedating and very anticholinergic in older adults. Psychotropics are on there. Um, so I already talked a little bit about the TCAs or the tricyclic antidepressants. They are going to come with your can't pee, can't see, can't spit, can't poop kind of things. Um, so all things we don't want older adults experiencing. Antipsychotics, we know that there's a black box warning for delirium and antipsychotics in older adults, so we use them. If you do hospice, you probably use them a fair bit. Um, but if you're talking about palliative care and someone who has many years, you're probably going to be using these for short term or minimizing use, if at all. Um, again, I mentioned the, the EPS or the extrapyramidal symptoms associated with the first generation as well, things like haloperidol um, that would come, potentially come with that. Uh, barbiturates, benzodiazepines, these are sedatives, and other sedative hypnotics, the Z drugs, olpidum, um, zolpidem, et cetera. So other medication things we need to think about, medication interactions beyond drug-drug interactions. So food interactions, things like grapefruit, right? Probably have heard about that with cytochrome P453A4 and affecting some of the metabolism as inhibiting that um, enzyme. And then herbals, which people take. Lots of people take. I drink herbal tea. I don't even realize I'm taking it. I'm not even thinking, right? Um, so we want to think about that if we 
don't ask, people won't volunteer it. If you don't say, are you taking herbals? Are you taking medications over the counter? They're not gonna think they're medications. So it's important to screen for all medications. Um, other things like alcohol, caffeine, and smoking also can affect drugs. So we wanna know if patients are, are engaging in these activities and then we wanna um, document it and be aware, make sure it doesn't interact with any of our medications. Cost for acquisition, formulation. Um, does, is somebody on a lot of liquid medications? Has anyone ever had somebody on a lot of liquid medications who has profuse diarrhea? from the medications. <laughs> so liquid medications have sucralose in them, have aspartame, have other things that are sugar alcohols. And if you're on all liquid medications, you might be getting some diarrhea from all those sugar alcohols. You might want that if you're constipated, but you might not want that if you're not constipated. <laughs> so um, we need to be aware of the formulations people are on and how they might be affecting them. Can people take all those big hunkin' pills and should we be putting them on liquids instead? So just thinking through that is important, and then availability. I work in South, I work in West Philadelphia. People don't have access to a lot of the medications I wanna give them. They're going home, they're going far, far away, out into the middle of the country. Can they get all of that Oxycontin? Can they get methadone? You know, making sure that they have the things that they can get their hands on is really important. Otherwise, they're just not gonna take it because uh, they can't get it. Um, okay, so here's that case I mentioned. So we have a 75-year-old widow who lives with her daughter. Unfortunately, she was recently diagnosed with lung cancer and bone mats, um, and she prevents with uncontrolled pain. So other things she has, other past medical history is listed out for you there. She's got, obviously she's 75, she's gotten to 75, so she has a few things that have happened to her along the way. She has some irritable bowel, um, depression, hypertension, recurrent UTIs, stress incontinence, anemia, and osteoarthritis. It's a fair list. And you can see she's earned herself a fair list of medications as well. Um, I'll read them off to you, and I'll let you make your own opinions about what you think about them. So she's on some uh, caraphate liquid, ranitidine, aspirin, alprazolam, naproxen three times a day, oxybutynin, dicyclamine, lisinopril, and acetaminophen number three, which is with codeine. Everybody like that list for her? I know, we're all cringing, right? So obviously there's a lot of medications on there that's like, whoa, is she confused? What's happening to this woman? How many times has she fallen? Um, so we're going to talk through some of this stuff, and then we're going to, at the end, talk about maybe how we can make this better or try to improve her medication list. Um, we also don't like that she's in pain, so we need to do something about that. So we're gonna talk a little bit now about pain in the older adult. Okay, so, yeah. So we're doing palliative care right now because she was newly diagnosed, so we don't really know where we're going with this. We're kind of figuring that out. That's a lot of the patients I see. Um, like I said, I see a lot of very young patients as well who are kind of like geriatric patients. Um, but yes, she's not going to hospice right now but potentially, <laughs> probably should, but not yet. Um, so seven, yeah. More or less, more or less, yeah. The medications should still be addressed no matter where she is, agreed. So this, these problems, these medications should never have all gotten started. Whoever did all that <laughs> didn't do a very good job. Um, but that happens, right? Because everyone's in a silo and doing their own thing. Like the person who's treating her IBS isn't treating her depression, isn't, so it's, if we're not all talking, or if we don't have someone reviewing those medications, when I was in training, we did a, I did geriatric rotations, and we used to have the patients bring their little brown bags, right? And everybody would we go through them as pharmacists and try and help clean that mess up, um, and try and help you know the patients with their adherence, um, because it's really hard to adhere to all that stuff. Um, so we do know about pain. Is 70% of cancer-related deaths and people are in people over the age of 65. So that's pretty, pretty significant. Um, Older adults are at highest risk for cancer-related pain, and older adults are at high, are very high risk for undertreated pain as well, for a lot of reasons. Um, and undertreated pain can lead to altered mental status and increased risk of falling. So 
medications can lead to altered mental status and increased risk of falls, as can untreated pain. And so it's a balance between these two um, very important variables. So we're going to talk about pain management. So pain in the older adult, in general, occurs in up to 85% of older adults. This doesn't mean pain that's debilitating. This just means in general. I'm not an older adult. I have some aches and pains, right? So <laughs> most of us have pains at some time. Um, there's no gender difference in global pain among 65 to 80-year-olds, so it's kind of across the board. Um, and it may be underreported because I know a lot of my older adults say, I don't, I don't want you to think I'm complaining, but... Um, so it's important to tell them you're not complaining, you're reporting. And I always write in my notes, patient reports. I never say patient complains of because complains sounds bad. It doesn't matter what age you are, nobody wants to be a complainer. Um, so reports to me is better. There's not a lot of data. Like I mentioned in one sentence earlier, we eliminate older adults from our studies. We, we kind of have to because they're a vulnerable population. They can't provide informed consent most of the time, if, especially if they have cognitive impairments. So it's they're we're extrapolating whatever data we have from younger people to older people. Very important to keep in mind. Um, and remembering that undertreatment may lead to a reduced quality of life, decreased socialization, which is really, really, really important. Um, I was just reading an article about how older adults become so much less social when they're isolated from all of this pain and when all they want to do is be with their family and they, they can't. Um, so sleep disturbances, cognitive impairment, disability, and malnutrition. I mean, everything you're trying to avoid if we could just treat their pain effectively. Um, so generally, what, you're, what you want to do in getting an assessment of pain, you want to get it from the patient, if you can, if you can. Now we know a lot of older adults or some of our older adults may not be able to do that. So if we can't get self-report, we want to find potential causes. Do we know there's something that, in, for instance, in this lady, bone mess, do we know there's a reason why she might have pain and treat the likely cause? Um, Observe patient behaviors. What is the patient doing around certain activities that we're doing to them or with them? And are they getting more agitated? And could that be pain? Like, I don't know, turning them in bed or certain things like that that we're like, hmm, why are they all of a sudden really agitated? Um, proxy reporting is good. We have to rely on that a lot of times. So using their families or their caregivers. And then when in doubt, when we have no clue what else to do, an analgesic trial, right? Like why, what's going on? Let's try and see. Maybe it is pain. We give a little pain medicine. They get better. We have an idea of what's happening. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Okay, so we want to establish a procedure for pain assessment. Um, we want to use tools as appropriate. So if they can communicate, we want to use our visual analog scale. We want to use our um, numerical rating scales. Remembering that I don't ever use a numerical rating scale. I know that sounds ridiculous, but um, those scales don't help me <laughs> very much. I want to focus on function, right? So these physiologic indicators are not important. How functional is this person? how non-functional is this person, and trying to get somebody more functional is what's most important to me. Um, you can use a scale mild, moderate, severe. That might help you. I like to ask, is it better than yesterday? Because <laughs> that gives me a sense of how I'm doing. I work in an inpatient facility, so I have the luxury of saying, is it better than yesterday? And that's a little bit easier than, is it, how has it been over a month? Um, <coughs> excuse me. And then you want to reassess and document all the time because pain is a moving target, right? So one minute, I know I, my providers will say, but I saw them this morning and their pain was fine. And I'm like, well, right now they're screaming. So, you, you know, we have to do something about this because this morning was fine doesn't mean this afternoon won't, will be the same thing. <clears throat> You've probably seen this pain assessment at least somewhere along the way here. You may be doing this yourself. I'm not going to necessarily go into detail about it for the interest of time. But the PQRSTU is generally how we assess pain, right? What makes it better? What makes it worse? Can we rate it? Where is it? Um, but the most important letter to me, especially in anybody, any patient I treat, but in an older adult, is that you. Like I just said, the function. How is it affecting you? 
in function, but also in adverse drug events. Because when I started this talk, I told you how many ADRs these older adults are experiencing with all of these medications. So focusing on how the drugs are affecting the people, but also how they're generally, the pain is affecting this person. Most important piece in my mind of the variable, I can figure out how well I'm doing with their pain medicine and their pain management right there. Um, okay, so general principles for pain and symptom management in any older adult, in anyone who's sick and very, very frail, Start low and go slow, right? But go. So again, I work in an inpatient unit. I start somebody on 300 milligrams of gabapentin. They go home. They sit on 300 milligrams of gabapentin for months and months till they come back to my hospital. And I'm like, you're still on that dose? Um, so titrate it as an outpatient. Either get rid of it or titrate it. If it's working at that dose, keep it. But otherwise, there's no point in being on something that's just been started at a very low dose and not titrated. So start low, go slow, but make sure that we go. Um, Remember to always use, in general, any principle should be the lowest effective dose for the shortest duration possible. That applies to anybody. Um, I know if this was me at my age, I'd want everybody to do this for me too. Um, <laughs> avoid polypharmacy if you can. You may not be able to, or you may not want to. You might want to use some rational polypharmacy. You probably need your Senna along with your opioid, right? So that's rational polypharmacy. You want to do things like put a PPI on when someone's at a high risk for bleed with an NSAID. Rational, makes sense. Um, Avoid starting multiple medications at the same time. I always tell my learners this. I hate when I see a note that has 12 different medications recommended or change this, change this, do this, change that. And I'm like, 12, that's too many things. What, how do I know what worked and what didn't work? And when I tell my patients, we're only going to do one thing at a time because I need to know what worked and what didn't work, they usually appreciate that, even though they understand it might take me a little longer to get where I want to go. I don't want to inflict harm on people by putting five medications. And then guess what? They won't take any of those medications ever again. And now I'm really, really stuck. Um, so one or two at most is usually how I roll. Um, and then I already talked about rational polypharmacy and thinking about agents that address more than one symptom because that can be helpful in avoiding starting multiple medications. Um, I am a pharmacist. I don't like drugs. Non-farm pain management is really important. You've heard that probably all week long. These are some of your non-farm options. I'm not going to belabor this because you've probably heard about it all week long, um, but there's lots of things out there that don't involve drugs. And so get, we offer a few things in our hospital, but not enough. Um, and I know insurance barriers are often very hard to getting things like this for people, but heat pads and cold packs are kind of easy to get. So um, you know, thinking through some things that we can do. Relaxation, um, distraction are really important too. We do a lot of that. Um, I find when I go in there and talk to the patient, that in and of itself, is sometimes therapeutic as a distraction. Um, okay, so I'll talk a little bit about some of the agents now in the older adult, a little more focus on these drugs. So opioids in the older adult, um, the American Geriatric Society guideline from 2009, which hasn't been updated, um, but probably will be soon, um, they say that, that we should use opiates in addition to acetaminophen. Um, I, I'm just wondering what they'll say next time, <laughs> given the current uh, arena, but anyways. Um, Older adults usually require lower doses, and if you're selecting a drug, you want to make sure um, we talk that you understand the pharmacokinetics. Equianalgesia is important, and then any adverse effects to expect from particular agents. Um, think about adjuvants, because adjuvants will minimize your overall opiate requirement. I was just at the opiate sparing talk yesterday, and I talked a bit about adjuvants. Um, and then frequently reassessing your treatment goals are really, really important, because if you're starting opioids, your goal is to make someone more functional. If you don't reassess that, you're not getting anywhere. Um, okay, so how do you choose an opioid in your older adult? What agent do you want to choose? I don't know. Start somewhere. Um, this might be where if you're going on hospice or not matters because you may or may not choose one agent or the other based on cost um, or availability. 
Um, so morphine, our gold standard, right? I, I teach a lot of the medical residents and a lot of the medical students. And when I talk to them, I ask them, does age matter when you choose an opioid? And they all inevitably say, you don't want to use morphine. Is that true if you're older? No, right? You can use morphine. You're just going to use a lower dose at an extended interval, potentially. Um, and the reason I actually sometimes reach for morphine in my older adults, because can you get one milligram of hydromorphone? Yes, but that's so much more potent than one milligram of morphine. And if someone is really, really, really opioid sensitive, a milligram of morphine is really nice because that's just a little bit and that might be all that they need. Um, so it's a very weak opioid, which is nice because I can give a little bit and it might be just the right amount. Um, again, remembering our own older adults have some renal insufficiency by nature. Um, and so we want to dose low and go slow, but go. Um, and in anybody with renal insufficiency, extended release is where you get in more trouble than with shorter acting here and there. So you want to be cautious with the extended release morphine products, especially in the older adults. Um, hydromorphone, oxycodone, oxymorphone. These are all generally fine. Um, we just use our geriatric dosing principles and use caution. Fentanyl and methadone are very inherently long acting when given in our you know, non-IV preparations. So fentanyl IV is obviously shorter acting or transmucosal, but the, the patch is a very long acting drug. I told you that it might have altered absorption in people who have decreased um, overall you know, skin keratinization. We talked about all of that as well as increased fat, but typically my patients I'm treating are very cachectic, so we have to be aware about absorption issues there. So fentanyl is a good choice in that it's cleaner, it doesn't rely on, it doesn't have the metabolites that some of these other drugs have, but we have to be aware that slapping a patch on someone who's older and frail and may not have a lot of weight on them is not probably ideal. Methadone has tricky genetics, rely on your specialists for that, that's what I do. Um, you probably will hear more about methadone later if you don't know a lot about it already. Um, but I've seen and I've done a milligram or two of methadone at bedtime in an older adult and have some really good long-acting analgesia and it's very little and it goes a long way and it's a liquid and it's inexpensive and so it, it, there's a role there for it potentially but it has to be in the hands of specialists and that again may be a good place for a hospice patient. Um, <clears throat> I've grouped codeine, tramadol, and tepentadol over to the right a little bit dangerous in our older adults from the serotonin perspective with uh, tramadol and dipentadol with things like serotonin syndrome, um, making people a little bit loopy too, increasing risk of bleeding. Um, and then codeine, just because it's codeine, <laughs> I don't even know if I need to go there, but um, codeine is metabolized to morphine. A lot of people don't metabolize it. Some people hyper metabolize it. If you've ever seen an opioid allergy with the drug, it almost it's always to codeine and it's not an allergy, right? It's what? Constipation, what else did I hear? Nausea, right? Constipation, nausea, confusion, almost always. So um, that's another reason to think about not using that. Or if I use it, I usually just use it for cough for a very short period of time. Uh, buprenorphine is a nice drug for an older adult potentially, but remembering it's a patch, so you might have, again, the, pharmaco um, the absorption issues. It doesn't mean you can't use it, just being aware of it. Um, and then hydrocodone may be an option as well. But hydrocodone is limited by acetaminophen. And so we'll talk a little bit about acetaminophen in a few minutes. Um, okay. I'm not going to belabor adverse effects, again, in the interest of time. Um, so adverse effects we're aware of. The one I like to point out the most is constipation. Obviously, older adults are already at risk for constipation. Um, so we add to that problem. And a lot of my folks will say, oh, God, no, I don't want to take your opioid because I've already got constipation. Like, I don't need that. Um, my favorite drug for constipation is milk of magnesia. Be careful in your older adult with renal dysfunction. But... It, it works. Um, 
Okay, so here's my friend acetaminophen. Remember, it's indicated for pain and fever. Um, maximum recommended dosing in an older adult is 3,000 milligrams a day, not the typical 4,000 milligrams that you or myself might be taking at a younger age. Um, but in our older adults, we want to just be careful about that maximum recommended dosing. Remember about combination products. Not everybody's aware that acetam is the same thing as APAP, is the same thing as acetaminophen, is the same thing as Tylenol, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so beware that patients may be taking multiple drugs, specifically asking, especially when you're recommending acetaminophen on a schedule. Um, recent therapeutic reviews will tell you that this drug may be limited in efficacy in low back pain and osteoarthritis. Remember, our older adults are exempt from these reviews. So take it with a grain of salt. You can still use it. Um, you can still try it. It's safe, generally, at therapeutic dosing. Um, NSAIDs, talked a little bit about already. Um, remember, they affect renal function, bleeding risk, and folks with cardiac disease, they interact with medications um, for cardiac disease because they cause sodium and water retention. So you wanna be careful with your NSAIDs um, in your older adult. Remember, they work really well in somatic pain and inflammatory pain. Our patient here was on naproxen, I believe, kind of a high dose, probably too high of a dose. Um, but um, she was on that, and probably because she was having inflammatory pain. Um, if someone is does have multiple reasons to potentially have a bleed, remember to put on a PPI. Again, multiple reasons is age in and of itself. Um, over 75 is a risk. Um, being on a serotonergic agent, taking a single aspirin a day, um, and being on other high-risk medications can put people at risk. Okay, other agents just to briefly touch on, gabapentin, pregabalin, we use this a lot. Remember, these are seen as active medications. Older adults may not need 1,200 milligrams a day. They probably shouldn't be on that, uh, but, or 1,200 milligrams three times a day, rather. Um, start low, go slow, but go. 100 at bedtime is probably a good place to start. Make sure they tolerate it. Titrate up from there. Um, antidepressants, I have a slide, um, on the next slide is a chart of these, so I'll touch base on those later. I already talked to you about mirtazapine. And the antipsychotics, choose wisely, obviously. Um, be careful, haloperidol is probably your cleanest at the lowest doses, so it's usually the one that we reach for. Um, this is my antidepressant chart. This also comes from that paper that I talked about, so uh, the reference is there for you. But it talks about just the risks associated with each of these different types of medications. Um, from your SSRIs, sertraline is most nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, but probably um, one of your safer options in an older adult. Um, it comes at a very low dose and can be titrated to a very high dose, um, so it has a lot of room for, for growth there. Um, things like fluoxetine and paroxetine are probably your worst choices, <laughs> um, just because fluoxetine has such a long half-life and paroxetine has anticholinergic effects. Um, Duloxetine and venlafaxine typically have a lot of nausea vomiting. May, uh, venlafaxine has an abstinence syndrome, so if someone misses a single dose, they may go into serotonin withdrawal. It might not be the best for someone who might have some adherence issues. Um, Mirtazapine is probably a good choice for your older adult, even though it's on the beers list, uh, just with monitoring. And then um, your TCAs, if you're going to use a TCA, choose something that's a secondary amine, like nortriptyline or disipramine, as they don't have as much anticholinergic burden. Um, so your case, just in follow-up, you can see the plan there. Um, there's a lot of things to do. We probably shouldn't do them all at once. Um, but if you want to start working on some of the medications, if you have other ideas, I'm happy to hear about them. Um, but I would like to at least alternate from alprazolam at bedtime. I'm not sure that's a good choice for this little lady. Think about maybe mirtazapine instead. Um, Non-farm stuff like radiation, maybe for her bone mets would be good to minimize what she needs uh, for her medications. Um, think about dexamethasone instead of naproxen. Does anybody do that? 
Yeah, right? So steroids. I know if I have bone meds someday, God forbid, or I'm dying, I want some steroid just a little, not too much. Um, but <laughs> that can be very, very, very helpful. Um, and so maybe considering that instead. If you're going to continue naproxen, do not start dexamethasone, one or the other, um, and maybe think about PPI. Does she need her aspirin? Primary prevention? Probably not. Um, so <laughs> probably can get rid of her aspirin. That would decrease some of her bleeding risk. Um, alternative to oxybutynin, anybody have any good ideas for that? Not a lot of good ideas, I know. But some of, the, some of the other agents may be less anticholinergic or have less anticholinergic burden. So choosing one of the newer agents for um, any kind of bladder issues may be helpful. And then um, does she need dicyclamine for her irritable bowel? I'm curious if she has, there's a lot of newer drugs out there now for irritable bowel with diarrhea, so potentially um, you know, trying an alternative for that. And then opiate selection for pain. We already talked about the codeine issue together with the acetaminophen. Anybody want to do anything different there? Yes, yes, yeah. Low-dose opioid, maybe, for starters. Oxycodone, two and a half. Anything is better. Um, she might be a good method, low-dose methadone person um, in general. So I think we've got a lot we could focus on. And did I miss anything? It's okay if I did. <laughs> Okay, no, I don't think so. Um, the carifate also can affect oral absorption of some medications, so we need to assess that potentially as well. Okay, so guidelines for deprescribing in older adults. Um, we want to, and the reason I'm saying this is because we were just talking about deprescribing, getting rid of some of her medications, changing things, trying to clean it up. Um, so you want to look over all of their drugs, try and figure out their life expectancy, good luck. Um, that's not that simple, right? But if we have an idea of how long someone might live for, we can talk about the need for certain drugs, like longer life um, affecting drugs like statins and things like that. Um, define overall what their goals of care are. Um, if you don't know, look at um, the current indications for things that they're on and see if they really still have those things. Like, did they go to the hospital and buy themselves some pantoprazole and don't really need it anymore? Um, and then run through absolute benefit harm thresholds for medications. Um, that's, there's uh, applications online to do that. You can look at the relative utility. That's a good way to do it. So what's the most important drug, what's the least important drug, and start hacking away at the lower, less important ones. Um, and then you always want to have a good plan and implement discontinuation plan with close monitoring and, of course, patient consent because that's gonna, your buy-in is your most important part. Um, so just to kind of round this out, there's a nice algorithm um, in, to avoid polypharmacy in older adults. Use the CARE algorithm, so caution and compliance, understanding that... Um, we want to identify those risk factors for uh, adverse drug events, keep our dosing simple, considering our risk and benefit ratio, um, think about ease of use for patients and costs so they can actually be, be compliant with medications, um, adjust our dose, right? Start low, go slow, but go. Um, review our regimen regularly, so avoiding automatic refills. If you're a pharmacist, that's really important if you're, um, because automatic refills mean people keep getting things that they may not even be on anymore. Um, they're just picking up all their medications. I used to work a long time ago in a retail pharmacy, and there was a lot of that, and we encouraged that because it made our lives easier as pharmacists, but it's not making necessarily the right choice for these people. Um, Look for other sources of medications, asking about other medications they may be taking, um, simple things even like, I don't know, cannabis. <laughs> um, so there's things out there that they might not tell you about or that they might not consider a medication because they're not getting it from a pharmacy. Um, 
and then deprescribing as much as possible. Educating, talk to your patient about what potentially is happening to them, warn them, educate them. That's probably the most important thing. Educate their caregivers so that people know what to look for um, and tell them not to look. Somebody taught me a really nice thing. So I had a patient who was picking up a phone and they went to go Google a drug I mentioned. And one of our MPs who was working with me was like, you know, why don't you Google that tomorrow after you've tried the medication and see, maybe you can see all the things you didn't experience versus saying, all the things that, because this girl was going to have every single, if she looked it up, it was that, she was going to, she was that kind of person. Um, so <laughs> anyways, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, so maybe that's a little trick. Um, and then assist your patient in making and updating a medication list. So that's important too. We do that at the hospital, print patients off a nice list of their medications, make sure that it's accurate because if they don't have an accurate list, no matter where they go, they can run into trouble. So in summary, um, changes in the body as we get older typically cause problems with medications. Um, it's important to start medications at lower doses and then titrate slowly, extending out the interval potentially, and always consider medication interactions. You can always ask a friendly pharmacist. I'm sure they're happy to help. Um, so this is just funny, I think. Um, <laughs> my parents have stopped putting money away for my college education and have started contributing to a fund, so I'll be able to pay grandpa's prescription bills because they're going to be big. <laughs> So that's it for me. Um, I'm happy to take any questions. Um, we have a couple of minutes, actually, so anybody wants anything. What is the role if you're in a state that has medical marijuana uh, So I'm in a state who just got it approved, um, and we don't actually have the access points yet kind of happening. Um, so I can't assist them with anything. <laughs> but um, I, I live next door to New Jersey, which has had it approved for a while. Um, so it's been, it comes up a lot. Um, so I don't assist them, but I don't say no. You know, I think it's, I don't know necessarily what they're getting. I'm hoping they're getting good product. Um, but if they're getting it from a legal place, I say if they're really struggling with these things, try it be aware of the risks and the benefits, supervise, and start with a little and see how it goes. We can't, um, like legally, but <laughs> yeah, so that's the problem is if they're at home, if they're a home patient or home hospice patient or something like that, they can access it. And if they want to do it at home, I tell them, I can't tell you not to. If it were me, I probably would do it. <laughs> you know, just try it. If I'm suffering with end-stage cancer, I'm probably going to try that no matter how old I am. Um, but I say, you know, use at your own risk. And that's okay. Yes, I didn't mention Marinol, and I probably should have. Um, I don't use a whole lot of Marinol. I find that it makes people sleepy and weird, and it doesn't work. Yeah, so I reach for mirtazapine. That's like my my friend in that situation, or steroids for the most part um, will be a good appetite stimulant. And usually these people are pretty close to the end of life, and that's okay. Um, but yeah, Dronabinol, I'm not such a big fan of either, for the same reasons. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Be really careful. Yeah. 
And I agree. I agree. I think anything that's approved is probably better, <laughs> you know, because we know a little bit more about it. Older drugs are better drugs than older people because we know so much more about them. I hate new drugs because I don't know what they're going to do to people. Um, I've had old people come in. I had one lady get admitted because she tried marijuana oil and got delirious. So you have to, you do have to be careful. Um, but I think when you're at the end of your rope, I wouldn't say don't do it. I would just say be aware, right, of what you're putting yourself at risk for. Agreed. Yeah. Right. Of course. Yes. I would. I probably would. Yeah, she's older. If she's if she's going to continue her aspirin for sure, um, I probably would. Yeah. Um, for appetite or <laughs> for appetite, I would I mostly use mirtazapine. I use, will use dexamethasone as a steroid. Um, those are kind of the two. To me, that they have the most bang for their buck kind of things. Um, but I, I have I done dronabinol? Yes. Do I like it that much? No. Um, it, it's just I and I'll educate the patients about that. Like there's not a whole lot of benefit to these things, so we're putting, we don't want to put you at increased risk. The dose typically for dexamethasone is on the lower side, especially if it's just for appetite, two to four milligrams a day um, is what I would do. Mm -hmm. Any other questions or thoughts or needs? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. They don't need it. <laughs> Yeah, so a statin and someone who has a couple of years left of life, most probably five. Um, so probably not. I think it's a discussion with a patient um, because sometimes they're married to it because they really they don't understand. So if we can educate them about this probably isn't helping you anymore and it's probably hurting you a lot, you all will often help to help them or their caregiver understand that maybe we stop it um, and see if you know, it definitely is tricky because if they've been on it that long, those are usually the people who are like, I can't stop this, I will not stop that drug, sorry, you're going to kill me. Um, but it's also, I think, if they have a cardio, like getting your other folks involved, the physicians who are the cardiovascular doctors or other people may help support your opinion. Um, and that usually helps because they're like, oh, well, my, well, my cardiologist said I can stop it, so therefore I'm going to stop it. Um, so that it's tricky, I think. But I, I agree, I don't think there's a role for it. Um, and then the other question was about... Um, Sorry, Coumadin, right, in, in, um, in palliative care patients or in hospice patients. So I think if someone is, um, that's risk-benefit as well, but if someone has acutely just had an incident, um, you probably want to continue that. But if they're so many years out and they've been just fine, again, a conversation with them about the risks and the benefits of continuing this. Is there a point? Um, and then potentially considering stopping it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The people like the newer agents, um, but I think, like I said, older to me is better because I we know we know what we're doing with those. We know how to monitor those. We know how to reverse those really well. 
Um, so I don't have a preference over any particular agent, but I would say, you know, if they need to be on it, it's about, it's just, I would continue whatever they're on for the most part, um, whatever, because I'm not necessarily choosing that. Um, and then Warfarin is not a bad choice, actually. <laughs> Hi. We're good. All right. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate your time.